You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. So we've been talking a lot about housing issues on Strong Towns over the last few months. And if you're listening to this and want to catch up on that, just head to strongtowns.org slash housing to see the highlights. But one huge component of housing is obviously development. And it turns out that we have a small scale developer on our staff at Strong Towns, Kia Wilson. So I've invited her on the podcast today to talk all about that. The process, the challenges, accomplishments, and why she's doing it in the first place. So Kia, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Rachel. It's nice to talk to you. Let's start with some background on why you decided to get into the developer game in the first place and what that looks like in your life. I know that you don't own like 30 apartment buildings or anything. So what does being a developer mean for you and why do you do it? Until actually just yesterday when I closed on a second building, I was fond of saying that I am the smallest of small-scale developers until very recently. I live in a duplex and I rented out the front half of it and that's it. I was managing one apartment unit as well as maintaining the one that I lived in. And they're both townhome style units that kind of function similarly to single family homes and that they're totally separate living spaces. So I got into it in large part because of my wonderful partner, Chris Bowman, who had from like a really young age actually been super interested in the idea of being a landlord, of being into housing. We're both urbanists by just sort of passion, not by training. We've always been passionate about cities. And if you have hung around people who are passionate about cities for any length of time, you'll realize that so much of kind of whatever you're passionate about will eventually touch housing. It's at the core of our urbanist conversations. And as people who are trying to make our communities better and scrutinizing the ways that we can do that given our challenges, our talents, our flaws, our resources. Um, you know, to make a very long story short, we scrutinized ourselves and where we were in our lives and thought that the place where we could make the biggest impact on a scale that we could sustain was by becoming landlords. So uh, yesterday, actually, <laughs> in the middle of the workday, I closed on a four-family building. So I'm now the manager of six units, including my own, five units not including my own. And maybe down the road we'll own some more, but we probably are just going to stick with these six for now. And our goal with new building is specifically to provide affordable housing. We've always provided market rate housing, but this we're actually trying to meet the needs of some of our city's poorer residents. How do you set an affordable rate and make it work financially for you? And like, what does affordable mean in your city? So the federal definition of affordable housing, um, and I actually wrote about this for the site, is pretty incomplete. It is 30% of your income, whatever that income is. If your income is $0, it's $0. If your income is 
$90, it's $30. So that's a sliding term. The way that we are sort of talking about affordable housing is we're looking at the comparable rents for the area that we are in. We're looking at uh, apartments with a similar layout in a similar location with similar amenities. And we're pricing it a little bit lower than that. Our first apartment that we bought, the one that we are renting out in the front is a two bedroom, two bath townhome that is like 1200 square feet. It's really big and has a lot of amenities. So obviously that one is not priced super, super low. It's priced lower than a lot of comparable units, but there aren't a lot of comparable units that are priced super cheaply. And we ended up in that situation because we were trying to get our feet wet as managers when we bought this building. We wanted to first live in a neighborhood where we knew a lot of people, where we felt comfortable, where we felt comfortable living where we didn't feel like we were biting off more than we could chew with regards to the many challenges that come with being a manager and a landlord. You have to really understand the neighborhood you're buying into to be a responsible landlord. I believe that. That's one of the ethics that we're trying to abide by. We had lived in St. Louis for about five years when we bought it. And so we bought in an area that we understood and knew a lot of people and had a lot of networks and felt very confident that we could be a positive force for the neighborhood. Now that we've lived there for a few more years, we've expanded our reach a little bit. We are buying in a neighborhood that's a little bit cheaper and uh, has residents with a little bit lower incomes. And the secret to being able to do this is you have to buy a cheap building in order to provide cheap rents. Um, This is kind of not rocket science. The article series that I imagine that I wrote and I imagine we're going to be talking about today talks about the real challenges of what that means. There is a misconception from people who have never had a real conversation with a ethical landlord, at least, um, or someone who strives to be ethical, that When you buy a building, you set the rents based on your greed. You set it based on what your expenses are. And if you pay way too much for a building or you buy in a really expensive area, you're going to need to charge a lot of money in order to cover your rents and break even and not lose money. An individual private landlord isn't a housing nonprofit. And we wish we could be a housing nonprofit in some ways, but we're not at a place in our lives to do that. So if we're going to do it on a scale that makes sense for us as private individuals who don't have a ton of money to play with. We have to buy things that are inexpensive, that um, have maintenance challenges that we can handle on a small budget, and that we can price in accordance with what people actually need. Let's get into that topic of money, since that was a big focus of this series that you have on our site this week, all about this process of purchasing your newest building. So when most people hear the term developer, at least if they're not involved with strong towns and similar organizations, they probably think that a developer needs to have a lot of money. But I know that you guys are not like millionaires. So how do you do it? If you're comfortable being you know, somewhat candid about that, like how do you weigh the costs and benefits and decide that it's worth it to pull the trigger on a purchase? 
basically, um, how we do it is um, we've done another podcast, you and I, Rachel, about about uh, the importance of frugality in my life. I bought my first house largely off of the proceeds of the sale of my first novel, which was not a giant amount of money, but it was enough for in my very inexpensive city, another city, it wouldn't have been enough to put down the down payment on a house. The rest of it um, and the funds for this came from just saving realistically and buying at a price point that made sense for our budget and also for our goals for the property for eventually wanting to provide some affordable housing. So the math that is going into it is, you know, we talk a lot on Strong Towns about the way that cities do accounting. They project for growth, but they don't necessarily project for maintenance and expenses. We are projecting like many years out. We are running scenarios of what would happen if this building was vacant for a whole year? What would happen if the roof caved in and then you know something happened to the electrical panel and we needed to replace it and we had X number of an emergencies? We are basically doing everything we can to predict the future and make sure that we are resilient to that future as much as possible, while also understanding that we don't want to be slumlords. We want to invest a little bit into improving the property in addition to maintaining it every single year. And that can be a really hard balance to strike, but there are some really great tools out there. And we're very lucky that coincidentally, over the past few years, Chris, my partner's brother, has also become involved in rental housing and real estate housing. And we have a network of friends who are landlords around St. Louis, and we're constantly talking about best practices and the way to do our own accounting work. We are not outsourcing that. It is not abstract. We are mucking around with the numbers in a really messy, dirty way that needs to happen if you want to be responsible. Over the past several months, you've talked to some of us as Strong Towns about the challenges that come along with doing this work. And in particular, this process that you've been in of trying to buy a four family building in your city, which hasn't been the smoothest experience. You've written about that in this series. So let's talk about some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered and how you've decided to handle them. I know that financing is a huge one that you addressed and then any other like challenges that really stick out and how to address them. So the article series that I wrote, if you haven't had a chance to start it yet, was specifically about trying to buy a four-family building on a block I'm calling B Street. And B Street is a historically deeply disinvested building, kind of disinvested in every way that a neighborhood can be disinvested. It's been ruined by its road infrastructure. It's part of a neighborhood that is hemmed in by two gigantic strodes. Um, You can tell by the building stock that it used to be a pretty stable middle-class neighborhood and cutting off connection to the major centers of commerce had a really devastating effect on it. It also was hit particularly hard by the housing crisis. There were waves of foreclosure. And it's also, there's no way around this, had some serious problems with crime. I know directly from working with the Community Development Corporation in the area that it was a major site of the heroin trade for many years, and that has been cleared out. But it takes a long time to recover from the kind of violence and disruption that comes with that kind of activity. There's sort of no way around it. And it sucks that people have to participate in alternative economies to get by, if you want to put it that way. It also sucks that there are kids on that block who weren't safe for many years because there was gun violence. And I imagine that also impacts the reputation of the neighborhood, even when that epidemic is not as prevalent anymore. 
Absolutely. I mean, you would not believe the things that people who live in St. Louis County say about all of St. Louis City, not just this particular neighborhood. We we don't have the best reputation for crime nationwide. I will say that I love this city and I feel super safe here all of the time, but it has deleterious effects on who's willing to invest. And over time, that has effects on who's able to invest. And that was sort of the focus of this article. So I chose the block that I did because all of those particulars aside, I love this block. I have friends who live on it. I've spent some time there. I've gotten to know some of the residents. Um, I feel like I understand the general culture there. It's a place where if I weren't locked in by a grant that we're on for our current place to staying in the building and in, I would live there myself. I think it's got a lot of really cool stuff going on. And it also seems like it needs some help that I'm equipped to provide and I could provide well. And I have the network there who could tell me if I was not doing a good job, what to do to straighten up and fly right, basically. I feel like I could be really responsive there. I, long story short, ended up trying to pursue buying a building from the Community Development Corporation who had bought a fourplex off of a problem landlord who was absentee, who was not maintaining the property to basically habitable standards. The building was in really, really bad shape. I didn't include this very much in the article, but he had been renting specifically to at least one, maybe more tenants who had committed a hate crime. And he was trying to keep them in the building because he wanted his rent check every month and get them off the charges. It was a really sad, terrible story that made our local news. So once the CDC had taken possession and had gotten the good tenants into habitable apartments and gotten the bad tenants out, I was looking into buying this building with my partner. And it was in a situation where it needed about $25,000 roughly worth of work in order to bring it up to a standard where I would feel comfortable putting people living in it. I'm not talking putting in granite countertops. I'm talking about repairing the sewer lateral and making sure the roof doesn't leak and making sure that there's water pressure in the showers and you know, basic, basic stuff that an apartment unit needs to have in order for it to be a clean, safe place for families, kids, even single adults to live, lead remediation, things like that. The price point that the CDC was offering it to us for was really inexpensive. We could easily, we thought, qualify for a loan for that amount. We also, and this is where we were wrong, <laughs> to spoiler alert, thought that we could easily require for the construction financing we needed to put up front in order to make it livable. And we discovered very quickly that that's really, really challenging. Maybe your city is different. I don't know if maybe there's some corners of St. Louis where I could have gone asking for funding. But for the better part of about four months, I tried everything that I knew how, including going to those large networks of fellow landlords, going to the CDC, calling banks directly, using every advantage of education. And if you speak the language of privilege, privilege that I had to try to get this building financed. And I couldn't do it. There was no financially responsible way for me to get that building renovated, get the down payment paid and bring it back to life. And eventually I had to walk. It was a really painful, painful decision because I loved it. And I knew that if I wanted to buy a building for twice as much, that was a in a good neighborhood and was in a slightly better condition, I could have done that tomorrow. But buying this cheap building just wasn't possible. And that was a hard thing to learn. And I think had some real implications for how I understand 
the challenges of real incremental development and what we mean when we specifically like nuts and bolts, hands in the mud, when we say incremental development when it comes to housing. It sounded like from your articles that like the main reason the financing just wasn't working out is because the banks were not willing to take the risk on this property, right? Yeah. Specifically, they weren't willing to take the risk on financing the repairs that it would need. Rehab funds are really hard to come by in St. Louis unless you're willing to take on a construction loan, which comes with, um, if you know what a balloon mortgage is, a five-year balloon mortgage. If you don't know what it is, you should probably go watch The Big Short and hear a little bit about how those really like mess some people up for a long time. Commercial loans were the only thing that were optioned for us. And when you're a small scale developer whose skin in the game is like your personal pennies that you squirreled away from your job at a nonprofit. And, you know, like there isn't a lot of redundancy there and you need to make sure that you're doing this responsibly. A balloon mortgage is not very appealing. The quick and dirty version of what that means is that a balloon mortgage will basically, they treat it like a regular mortgage for the first three, five, however many years. And at the end of that period, you either have to pay back the entire balance of the loans principal, aka the balloon, or you have to refinance. Every bank in the world will tell you that it's so easy to refinance. Of course, you'll be able to do it. But as we've shown through some articles on Strong Towns, Chuck wrote a really good article about the implications of balloon mortgages in the commercial real estate field. There are some really compelling and scary reasons why you don't want to take those on. And if we want more small developers to invest their personal money and to really be landlords who care, that can't be the financing option that they'll take on. It's just too risky. So some of the other challenges that I've heard other small-scale developers talk about and I wanted to ask if you've encountered or anticipate encountering are dealing with like getting permits and all the city codes and just layers of legal stuff um, that are involved, especially if you want to make serious changes to a building, like convert a single family to a duplex or something. Um, have you run into much of that or has the work that you've been doing been small enough that it doesn't require lots of permits and things. So with this particular building, we would have needed to hire a general contractor to navigate that permitting process. And we were in this really awkward area where the amount of work that the building needed was not a big enough dollar amount that a general contractor would take it on. And yet we needed a general contractor to navigate that complex regulatory process. And also because the bank required that we hire a general contractor. So even if you had known how to do that stuff yourself, the bank wouldn't have allowed it. Exactly. Even if I had been willing to like put in the time to investigate and learn all of my city codes and, you know, the one thing that I am really good at, I don't have a ton of money to be a developer, but I'm very, very dedicated to solving a problem and researching it well. I will, I will put in my time, but I couldn't do that legally because understandably the bank doesn't want to take a risk on an untested 
contractor. If I wanted to be my own GC and I'm not licensed, they don't want me to do it. They want someone who they know is a professional. And that was really challenging for me to accept because what it means is that those loans are really structured for people who are making gigantic transformative projects. The kind of small scale projects that we advocate for at Strong Towns, there just isn't the financing for them. And there isn't the financing for a non-professional who is willing to learn and treat it with care to take those things on. It all has to be done in such big increments that sometimes the incremental development we want to do, it just isn't possible in the areas where we want to do it. You just hit on so many core issues that we deal with at Strong Towns. I think like we've talked about the whole licensing issue before and how like you know, maybe our governments have gone a little bit too far in requiring all these extended licensures for even somebody who just wants to make like some basic changes to a building. And also, you know, the whole fact that everything is structured for larger level projects and larger dollar amount people kicks out so many people who could be making those small, important changes in their town. It's a shame because... The sympathetic side of me wants to understand why we do things like that. You know, I mean, like some of these things you could argue, I've been reading a little bit about the history of housing and developer regulations over the past few weeks. In some places, though definitely not all, the origin of these regulations has to do with tenant protections. They, you know, if I'm like a total idiot who doesn't know how to fix a furnace, they don't want me monkeying around with somebody's furnace, causing a gas leak and killing people. Like that's completely reasonable. But a lot of these regulations don't have roots in such an altruistic goal. I was reading a book called In Defense of Housing um, by one of the authors is named Peter Marcuse, and I'm forgetting the other ones right now. But they were talking, for instance, about the origin of tenant protections in New York City and specifically regulations that like there needed to be a window in every bedroom and a toilet for every like 20 people. It was some like gigantic number. And On the surface, that sounds like a great idea to protect vulnerable people from landlords that would shove them into trash cans and charge them $200 a month in rent. In reality, what that came from was like a deep fear from very rich people of poor people's sanitation. It was a way to functionally zone poor people out of their neighborhoods because they couldn't afford the kind of changes that developers would need to make in order to accommodate them. That's sort of the tension and the balance that we're always playing with when we're trying to talk about how to fix housing. We want certain things, but will they be cost prohibitive in the system? If we need to change how much things cost, how will we, through market manipulation, through subsidy, through, you know, whatever we need to do, how will we make it feasible for people? It's a very complex web and it's not as cut and dry as you would like to be as someone who just wants to do something simple, like put in a, you know, functioning toilet in a house and make sure that your tenant can use the bathroom. That's really hard to wade into as a single individual. And I think it's crucial that we make it better and easier. One of the other 
challenges. Well, I don't know if you would say this is a challenge, but from my outsider perspective, as someone who's not yet a developer, one of the things that seems like it would be hard or just like a new territory to trod is being a landlord. And, you know, if you're buying an existing building, maybe inheriting the existing tenants and just like dealing with tenant relationships, that sounds stressful to me, particularly if you're living in the same building with people who are, you know, maybe total strangers. Um, how have you guys kind of figured out how to do that in a good way? And also like how to screen and choose tenants that are the best fit for the building? We are super, super lucky that we live adjacent to a awesome community development corporation called Tower Group CDC that offers a series of landlord trainings once a month throughout the year. And they offer a very low cost tenant screening service that we feel really confident about. And we've gotten into the guts of how they're actually screening people and how they're making their recommendations. And we're really impressed with the balance they strike between protecting the landlord and also getting people into homes who need homes who may not be like perfect all-star tenants. They see around those issues to who's going to actually be the best fit for a building. And so far, they have really, really done right right by us. I'm very happy with them. Of course, it's challenging to manage a property and sometimes manage perceptions and understandings of a building. But this is where I think we initially, when we initially decided to be landlords, thought we could really shine. And I've been really happy and proud of us with how we've been able to do this. Um, What we can do uniquely as owner managers who manage a very small number of buildings is we can really get to know our tenants and we can really develop deep relationships with them. We can, you know, for the ones that live on the front of our house, we can uh, go around the front yard and, you know, if their furnace goes out, we can bring them some hot chocolate while we're waiting for the furnace guy to show up and fix it. We can um, get to know them. We can be very friendly. We can remain in much closer communication with them than someone who, for instance, is, you know, maybe with like a large scale management company managing hundreds of doors who has to manage a small staff. We can be super responsive and super attentive. Is every owner manager, small scale person inherently going to be the best landlord in the world? No, we have had landlords ourselves who were owner managers who use that as an excuse to say, oh boy, we don't know what we're doing. And we don't have the legal pressure in the state of Missouri, which is a very landlord-friendly state, to learn that stuff and to care. I'm not saying that big developers and big landlords are terrible and that uh, small landlords are universally bad. But I do think that because of why we got into landlording, we've been able to use it as an opportunity to be better landlords than we had when we were renters, um, who's always goal and to emulate the good landlords that we have had. One of the people that we call most often is our landlord in the last building we lived in who has like really great ideas about how to work with people when they're having a hard time, um, who helps us sort of like suss through those issues of, you know, how am I balancing my bottom line against keeping this person in this home? We're very lucky that we haven't had to deal with an eviction yet. We haven't had to deal with major, major disputes yet. But when we have hit speed bumps, we have the network and the relationships around us to help us figure out the best way to get everyone over them and let everyone feel cared about. You went through this process of trying to purchase a particular for family property and then due to all the setbacks, didn't end up doing it. But you still ended up purchasing another property. What was the outcome of that? And how did you kind of shift gears? 
coincidentally, on the day that we finally told the CDC we were working with that we had to walk from this property, it just wasn't working. We had spent too much time trying to make it work. Another building for almost exactly the same amount came on the open market. And we called our real estate agent and it worked out. What we ended up doing is we had to buy in a neighborhood that was a little bit more established. It's definitely not an affluent neighborhood, but it is one that I feel really confident that we are able to make an impact there that is positive. We aren't just pouring more money into an affluent area that doesn't really need investment because people are jumping all over themselves to invest there anyway. It's also a lot easier to finance. It's a lot going to be a little bit easier to get tenants in there, and it's definitely going to be easier to get it fixed to the point where we can put tenants in there really, really confidently. It doesn't need $25,000 worth of work. It needs like five dollars to $8,000 worth of work, which is not insane, basically. And that's an amount that it maths out well. We can afford to self-finance that and we don't need to pursue a construction loan. I felt kind of sad when I made this decision in some ways. As happy as I am with the building that we bought, as excited as I am to get tenants in there, I'm going to show someone an apartment today. It bummed me out a little bit that I had isolated an area where I, that I thought really needed us to, quote, Sarah Kobos's great piece, Find an Area That Needs You, that she wrote for our site. And we couldn't do it. We found another area where we could. And it taught me something, I think, about what we mean when we say incremental development at Strong Towns. When we're talking about incremental development in housing, it doesn't mean pick anywhere. It doesn't mean incremental development on any house that you could just like throw a dart at a map and, oh, it's in decline. Let's throw up a street tree and see what happens. There are strategic places where you need to do it. And that's a painful thing. I think that there are ways to improve B Street, but it's going to take heavier levels of intervention. It's going to take, for instance, like a nonprofit program that is willing to greenline that building. If you haven't read about greenlining, I really recommend you look up that term. Greenlining is something I've been learning about. For instance, in Detroit, the Ford Foundation, I believe, is subsidizing a bank to basically guarantee loans in areas where the buildings will not appraise for a value that a seller will accept. That's a real big problem in cities like Detroit and St. Louis and Cleveland and other places where buildings have been so systemically disinvested and they need so much work that they are worth essentially nothing. They need more money than you could possibly recoup on a sale in order to just be basically habitable. And so banks won't touch them and these buildings rot, even though often in St. Louis um, and Detroit and all these cities, these are gorgeous pre-war brick buildings that in neighborhoods where people actually do want to live, especially if they could live there inexpensively. We make it impossible for people to invest and really hard for people to, as which I think is honestly the better option, as owner-occupants buy homes. It's not possible. So greenlining is something that is a really interesting concept for me, but it has to be balanced against this challenging thing that we talk about a lot at Strong Towns, which is no matter how much you try to save individual neighborhoods that, or how much you want to, some of them are just so overbuilt that they're not going to make it. And that's really, that sucks. (laughs) That's really, really hard. Like when we talk about, trying to resuscitate 
something that's dying, <laughs> we come up on these really challenging paradoxes. And I've been meaning to call Chuck and just like lament about this and see what he says, where are we talking about propping up things that are wired for decline, getting them rewired and just sort of like kicking the can down the road a little bit? Or do we really need to start thinking about not how can I get the B streets of the world back up and running, but how can I bring the residents of B streets into a high opportunity area? How do we deal with those tensions is really, really challenging. And I don't have good answers for it. There are things that I can physically do as a developer in a small scale and as a landlord, and that limits it. it to a certain point, it's constrained by the financing that's available. Like right now, there isn't hope for um, financing buildings on B Street with the exception of you know, I know some people who own or manage and live in some buildings down there that they were able to secure financing of very, very small amounts for. And that's a miracle. The CDC is owning some stuff and that's pretty good. Maybe and possibly they're down the road. People will be very altruistic, will want to treat this real estate as home rather than as a real estate investment. And they'll make all cash offers on these buildings and they'll take really good care of them. But the scale at which we need to rehabilitate these places, we're counting on a lot of unicorns. <laughs> if we think that every single person and every single building is going to find one of those solutions, they're not scalable. And that's what's really I'm wrestling with right now throughout this process. That's what's been really hard for me. What do you are the biggest things that would need to change to make this small developer in a lower income neighborhood thing more possible? Like, is the financing really the key thing? Do we need more community banks and banks that are willing to take more risks? Or are there other things that you think could kind of change this picture? I don't know. That's where I'm, I feel like it's really hard. I should be clear that um, the banks I reached out to, and I reached out to a lot of banks, a lot of them were community banks. A lot of them were credit unions, people who were physically going out to the property and looking around and able to make those sort of sensitive on the ground decisions. It wasn't like abstract national banks who were just looking at numbers on a sheet and not seeing the potential. It was people who were going out there and saying, well, I see the potential, but how are you ever going to be able to sell this for an amount that justifies my risk if you decide next year that you want to move? <laughs> like That's how banks think. That's how banks have to think. Absence, either a lot of nonprofit, government, institutional support and subsidy, which I have to be honest, I don't think in every situation it's a good idea. Sometimes it's a great idea in some neighborhoods where strategically it really makes sense to give them a little push. But I think like when you're talking about cities with vast vacancy. I don't understand how you financially justify that when you look on a macro scale. I was pretty persuaded by a conversation I had with Richard Rothstein. I went to one of his events. He's an author of the book, The Color of Law. And he said like, maybe we shouldn't focus as much on redeveloping these areas that are really, really struggling. And we should focus a little bit more on bringing those struggling people into high opportunity areas. And that's something that I've been chewing on a lot. And what opportunities do I have there? It's a mix of things. But I think that the biggest thing we need is just like some sort of strong town style diagnostic approach for like, 
is it worth it on an economic level while also holding in our mind the fact that these are people's homes. These are real people who, whether or not their area is financially stable, they love St. Louis and they really want to stay on the particular block where they live, even if it's poorly designed, even if it has absolutely no money coming in in order to maintain it. I don't have solutions. I have a lot of questions, but I think that I'm in the right place at Strong Towns to have them. And if anyone's listening to this and wants to talk, just give me a call because I'm going to fret about this probably forever. <laughs> These are like huge, huge issues we're talking about and wrestling with. Do you have any thoughts on how we can incentivize more thoughtful, caring, ethical landlords to step up versus having the market of low-income housing, which it so often is, just kind of be saturated by absentee slumlords? Any thoughts on like how to encourage more people to do what you're doing? Or is it really a matter of figuring out how to make the math work so that it's actually feasible for more people? I think the math is the biggest thing. The financing and the balance between financing and feasibility is the biggest thing. Education and training has been really instrumental in my life. Relationships and connections, putting landlords in touch with one another. Um, And I would also add Community cohesion. I know that sounds very silly, but and kind of like fluffy and woo woo, but I think that there's something to be said for a neighborhood development style and also a neighborhood culture where people talk to one another, where bad landlords are pressured to change, where there is some sort of shaming, um, frankly, like mechanism to this stuff. When I read about a building that I'm considering buying, you know, we looked at a number of buildings. I didn't really include that much in the article. And I see that it's owned by an out-of-state LLC who is likely using this building mostly as a tax haven. And they have an in-state manager who I know from personal just around town is not doing very awesome. I don't think there's anyone holding that person to task just socially. I can't speak to what regulations would make sense to make sure that tenant protections are enhanced. That's really not my area and it's challenging. I would love to talk to someone who knows more about that. But I think it's a really sticky problem that is only going to be solved, like all of our city's problems are going to be solved by a lot of very small solutions. And a lot of that is going to involve deploying individual actors, you know, individual tenants and landlords who feel comfortable saying like, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm going to report you for this because if I'm a tenant and I'm a low income tenant, who's very vulnerable to eviction, I have other options. <laughs> um, it's, it's just building a network over time. That's the hard problem for me. It's often not really able to be the tenants that make the complaints, you know, when there aren't a lot of protections because then they're worried about getting evicted. We've been in the process of looking at apartments in Boston because we're moving in a few months. And I just had the thought, like, I wanted to complain to my current landlord about a noise issue. And I'm like, well, if I complain, are they going to not give a good recommendation to my landlord that I hope to work with in Boston? So, and I'm like in a, a nice apartment that, you know, we have a good relationship with the landlord, but even so it's, there's not always like a comfortable way to raise those concerns if you're a tenant. Of course. I mean, it's, it's a really challenging system. Joe Courtright wrote a little bit about this, but like 
when we think of housing as at the same time, both real estate and as home, we run into some really weird gray territory because those things are kind of in some ways irreconcilable. We're reconciling them every day because we have to in America. But, you know, if you're someone who your landlord is both the person who is providing you a service, you are his customer, but also he's responsible for your future (laughs) in a lot of ways that puts you in a vulnerable place. And, he, at the end of the day, is a property owner um, and you're not. And how do you navigate that stuff? I I really hope we can get some people on the podcast or on the site to talk about that side of the equation because it's complementary to this urban economics consideration we're trying to have. It's something that we need to bear in mind as we're trying to figure out how to make our cities fiscally sound. It's going to include some very soft skills of how do we make sure that landlords are doing their jobs and tenants feel empowered to move. I wrote another article for the site called Stuck, and this isn't one of the things that I touched on in that. But yeah, in that article, I was talking about why if we want a free market solution to our housing problems, people need to move and why people don't move. And you're absolutely right that part of it is just like your landlord's giving you a bad recommendation and you can't move. You're stuck. If we want to explore those solutions, you need to talk about everything. Housing is tough and complicated. <laughs> so to refer back to the podcast that you did a while ago about you know financial resilience, it sounds like for you this developer and landlord process is definitely, you know, a passion project and something that you care in your heart about, but also that it is, you know, a financial decision. This is one of the ways that you are investing your money to get a return on investment. For sure. Yeah. I mean... I would say that the reason we are doing this is more like 60-40 tilted towards we think this is a good thing for us to do as like human beings with our time on Earth and it's a place where we can be of service. The other 40% is it would be nice someday to, well, not even someday, just to right now build some resiliency into our budget. You know, if like Chuck Marone spontaneously combusted and like we had no way to keep strong towns going and I was out of a job, having some rental income would probably help. And if I can do it in a way that makes me feel good to get up in the morning, that's great. When we get this building we just bought up and running, it will provide us enough income for if one of us gets laid off, we won't be sunk. It's building resiliency and redundancy into our sort of household system. With that said, until that happens, we're investing a lot of this money back into the building and we're weighing our decisions every single year about what we're doing based on what's good for the tenants too. So we overpay on our mortgage every month whenever we can, which is most months. We're very lucky that way so far. We have hopefully will own this stuff outright and it will just be pure income, but it's never just going to be pure income, you know, because it's always going to be somebody's home and we're never going to forget that. That's, that's really our goal here. Our goal is not to do the thing that I think really, really bad slumlords do, which is spend the absolute minimum amount you need to spend on a building in order to extract the maximum amount of value. That would be the business strategy that would make sense in a super declining neighborhood. And to some extent, in a larger neighborhood, there are slumlords in in richer neighborhoods too. That's not the kind of landlords we strive to be. Well said. To close it out, what advice would you give to people who are considering getting into the landlord slash developer game at any phase? 
Ooh, 14 hours of advice (laughs) forever. Reading up on it a lot (laughs) is really important. Are there good resources that you can point people to? I know you talked a lot about like local resources, but are there books that you've read or online stuff? Not books, actually. I hesitate to recommend them because I don't think they're unilaterally the best resources, but Bigger Pockets has some good advice. Mr. Money Mustache has some okay advice. Because those are both forum sites, you will see a fair number of people filter into that who really do want to use housing more as real estate and more as an investment and less as creating home. A community change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and it's always going to be some degree of both and you might suck at one, but you know, you have to decide what sort of balance you're trying to strike as a person. Those things are good for like the nitty gritty of putting together a pro forma spreadsheet. If you haven't heard that term, look it up. It can really help you make a decision about whether to buy a building or not. It's also good for things like the legal stuff and that you need to know if you don't have access to legal counsel and you should budget for some sort of legal counsel if you aren't lucky like me and have a lawyer in your family who I call dad, who I can call up, but I can call him up and say like, look, what are like quick advice right now? What what are my obligations here? And what do I really need to make sure I'm doing? But generally, I think the best advice I have is just ask yourself why you're doing it. Remember that housing is never just real estate. It's not. It's you're dealing with real people and you're dealing with real people's homes and try to develop a practice and develop the relationships in your life to keep you on track with the goal you set out for yourself because it's not easy to strike that balance. It's a practice. You have to do it every day. Every single time somebody calls you and says, my oven isn't working or something more abstract, like my dryer isn't working, you know, like, do you tell them to go to the laundromat or do you fix it? Like those sort of nuts and bolts decisions can have big implications for your values and who you are. And getting solid with that and developing the people around you to help you stay solid with that is the biggest thing. And in terms of resources, also we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the Incremental Development Alliance, awesome folks over there who host trainings and a whole slew of other resources. So check that out if you're like wanting to get started. Well, Kia, thanks for being on the podcast again and for being willing to talk deeply about finance and, you know, your personal life. It's really interesting and I hope helpful for people to learn from your experiences. We don't always share, you know, 100% happy, smiley stories on Strong Towns. And this is unfortunately one of those that's not like 100% easy, but I'm glad we're able to talk about it candidly because that's really valuable. Well, I hope I haven't been too much of a bummer. I will say that like, I anticipate in a year's time, I will be able to come back and give you a thousand heartwarming stories about my tenants in my new building. Like I will have gotten over this B Street thing. I will have been sad (laughs) for the time I needed to be sad. This all just happened. And I will be able to talk about the real positive change that I've been able to help facilitate with their help on the ground. I already have stories like that from my current duplex. I feel really, really proud that we have put the kind of tenants in that apartment that this block is really needed because it was a vacant, you know, we bought a vacant building here too, even though it was a slightly more established neighborhood. It was a positive change. So circle back with me, Rachel. (laughs) Give me a year. I will. (laughs) And it's good to be able to hear from somebody who is you know, on the starting end of this process. We've had Monty Anderson and John Anderson and 
probably other developers on the podcast over the years. And they're fantastic. They have so much wisdom, um, but they've been doing it for a long time. So it's great to be able to hear from you who are just getting started and experiencing all the highs and lows. So thanks. Thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Always good to talk to you. Okay. Bye. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.